Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Matthew's gospel. Hear God's holy word. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit who filled Jesus as he preached these words, the spirit who has preserved these words and delivered them to us through the ages. By that same spirit, we pray that you would give me articulate speech, that I would able, be able to communicate these things clearly, and that we would receive them and hear them by your spirit and obey them. So cover us with your mercies now and fill us all with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every time you fly on a commercial airliner, you are subjected to a safety briefing led by the flight crew as the plane taxis to the runway. The stewardesses uh, direct passengers to locate the nearest exit. You learn the procedures for what's gonna happen if the cabin loses pressure. In case of a water landing, you find out that your seat is a flotation device. Every time, it doesn't matter how many times you've flown, or how many flights that plane has had that day, every flight, every passenger gets the briefing on what to do in the worst case scenario. And for the overwhelming majority of people flying on airlines every day, there's never a need to put any of these emergency procedures into practice. You could be a frequent flyer for decades and never once have to use the oxygen mask that pops down from your overhead compartment. Never need to do that even one time. Now, it would be absurd for someone to suggest that because the airlines put these emergency measures in place, that they're secretly hoping that someone will have to act on what they've learned, that someone will have to use the information in the emergency procedures. It's silly to say, well, they really secretly want people to use their seats as a flotation device. After all, they spent all that money putting them in there, so they they must really want us to use that. That would be ridiculous. As ridiculous as that is, that, that same line of argumentation is used by the Pharisees with Jesus when it comes to the subject of divorce, because they seem to think that because divorce is mentioned in the law of Moses, that means therefore that Moses was comfortable with the idea that divorces are just gonna happen, and, and, and if he didn't want divorces to happen, then why did he bring it up, is their, is their line of questioning. If there's instruction on how to do a divorce, then a divorce me must be all right. It's a very confusing line of questioning that comes from the Pharisees here, men who are supposed to be these paragons of righteousness, experts in God's law. And it's so bizarre that it can only mean that their question is not on the up and up. Something is off about this whole exchange. They're not being fair 
or asking this question in good faith. Nevertheless, Jesus' answer to this question is crystal clear, and he cuts right through all of the noise and the confusion. Yes, divorce is indeed a provision of God's law, but it's only there as an emergency measure. Divorce has a label on it that says, for use only in case of disaster, and Jesus defines what a disaster is. When, when legitimate disasters happen, it's an amazing blessing to have a disaster plan, to have an, an exit route, a way out of the disaster. But it is a disaster unto itself to, to walk up and open the emergency hatch when the plane is en route. That creates a new, it's a disaster in itself to jump out of a functioning uh, commercial aircraft. Thus, Divorce is not a casual dissolution of a frivolous arrangement. Marriage is not a human construct, not a human agreement that can be entered into and departed from as often as you change your mind. Jesus answers the challenge of the Pharisees with this teaching that marriage is designed by God for God's purposes. Well, let's get to the context and remember where we are in Matthew's gospel and importantly, where Jesus is geographically. I'm gonna to try to draw you an air map from your perspective. You have a better map in your Bible than what I can draw you in the air, but if you'll bear with me, if you can imagine the region, the land where Jesus ministered and lived, up north we have the Sea of Galilee, and flowing down from that we have the Jordan River. The southern region is known as Judea. The northern region up around the Sea of Galilee is known as Galilee down to the west of the Jordan River in the south, in the region of Judea, was the city of Jerusalem. Up north is Nazareth, where Jesus, where Jesus grew up. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right outside of the city of Jerusalem, in the south, in the southern region of Judea. But his father, earthly father Joseph, was from up north in Nazareth, in the region of Galilee. And so growing up in Nazareth, Jesus and his family would come down to Jerusalem for the feast days, but he didn't grow up around Jerusalem. He grew up in the, in the north, and he was raised far from the city of Jerusalem. When he's about 30 years old in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes down to the wilderness of Judea, but he's on the eastern side of the Jordan River when he meets with John, and he's baptized there by John. And then immediately he goes up and out back into Galilee where he remains from chapter four all the way to chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel. The point is the entirety of, of Jesus's ministry to this point has happened outside of Judea, away from the city of Jerusalem. He's gone into Gentile territory a time or two. The city of Jerusalem has sent an entourage to Jesus to check him out and to test him, but Jesus has been physically far away from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but now, after the transfiguration, we've had this turning point. Uh, the, the time for his confrontation with the authorities in Jerusalem is drawing near. 
And so he's given his apostles some indication of what's gonna happen when they get to Jerusalem some warnings. He says, I'm gonna suffer many things. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm gonna be killed and raised on the third day. And then after he gives them these warnings, then he starts to head south. Only then he starts to move south on a direct path to the cross. So as we open chapter 19, he has left Galilee. He's left Galilee for good. He's left his home country and he's come south to the region of Judea, but on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's not in the city yet. He's in the same area where John the Baptist ministered. He's outside the city limits across, across the river. So there we find him healing and ministering to the great crowds that have followed him. And right on time, the Pharisees show up to test him. Now, the last time he was here, after his baptism with John, the spirit drove him further out into the wilderness where he was tested by the devil. Now he's in the same area. Now again, he's in the wilderness. Again, being tested, being tempted is the exact same word in Matthew 19 and Matthew 4. Satan tested Jesus. Satan tempted. It's the same word here. The Pharisees came to him testing him. And, and now he's being tested again, not by the devil directly this time, but by the Pharisees. And so the fact that Matthew uses this word, tempt or test, this is our first clue that the Pharisees are not here to learn. They're, they're not looking for the truth. They're here to tempt Jesus. They're trying to trick him into doing or saying something, trying to provoke him into incriminating himself or to draw him into some nonsense debate that will be a distraction from his work. And so the question they ask, it's not just something off the top of their head. They're not just simply going through a, a list of questions that they have for this great teacher. No, this is a calculated, strategic power move by the Pharisees. The topic they bring up was at the heart of a raging debate at the time between various schools of rabbis. Uh, the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, there's one well-known rabbi who had said that there was to be no divorce for any reason whatsoever, no matter what. He was not a popular rabbi, at least, but he was, he was known, and that was a position. There was another more popular rabbi who went to the other extreme and said, you could divorce for any reason. And there was a list of reasons for which you could divorce your wife. You could divorce her for burning your supper, for oversalting your food, for spinning around too quickly in the marketplace and showing off her knees, uh, for taking her hair down in public. I'm not making these up. These were in the, in the rabbinical writings. For taking her hair down in public, for speaking to men. You could divorce your wife if you found somebody more desirable or if she didn't give you a son. Now, all, the focus of this conversation is all on the man's ability to put away his wife. When we get to 1 Corinthians and Paul teaches on Christian marriage and divorce, the wife's potential to initiate divorce with a covenant breaker is also in view. But the wife's role and the wife's perspective is not in view in this rabbinical debate. And that's reflected in the Pharisees' question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. So why do they bring this up? Why, why now, why here? It's very possible that they were looking to provoke Jesus into making a broad, controversial, 
pronouncement that would put him at odds with one or two of the other camps, that, that he would be drawn into a debate that would alienate the other side. And maybe they can trap him into saying something that would make him unpopular with the people. Many of the people who would have had these easy divorces uh, who were followers of the second rabbi. What do they want? The Pharisees ultimately want him dead. They want him gone. They want him out of the picture entirely. And here's why it's important to know where Jesus is geographically. <clears throat> he has just entered the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. Now before in Galilee, he was under the jurisdiction of Herod's brother Philip. But now as he's moved south, he is in the, the territory of Herod Antipas, who, remember, married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, John the Baptist publicly rebuked Herod for this, and Herod had John imprisoned and beheaded for his position on marriage and, uh, and divorce and, and for being so vocal about it. And so here they are in this region, virtually in the shadow of the fortress where John would have been imprisoned, and thinking if perhaps the Pharisees can provoke Jesus into saying the same thing John the Baptist said, and maybe Herod, Herod, who is already paranoid about Jesus, Herod may have him arrested and destroyed. That's their hope. It's not genuine. It's not good faith. They're trying to provoke Jesus into saying something that will get him twisted up with the authorities. Well, Jesus does answer them, but his answer doesn't begin. Jesus' answer doesn't begin with, well, I think, or I believe, or, or I feel. That's not how Jesus begins his answer. He asks them, have you not read? He begins his responses to the Pharisees who are tempting him the same way he answered Satan who was tempting him, which is by going to the scriptures. He goes to the book. The answers are in the book. Haven't you read? My God has already spoke to this. Jesus goes way back to a position older than himself, to a position older than the rabbis, older than their traditions and customs and debates. And he says, let's see what my father has to say about this. Let me quote my father in heaven. <clears throat> so he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> so what he's doing essentially is, uh, you have framed the question this way to talk about the disaster, to talk about the exception, to talk about the outlier scenario, divorce. I'm not interested in doing that. Let's begin with the rule before we get to the exceptions. The rule, the foundational principle here is that God created man and woman, God created male and female to be joined together. That one man is created for one woman. He created them for each other, to desire each other with a unique ability to comfort each other and to live together in a way that the two become one. And this wasn't by man's design. This is not something men thought up. It is God who created this arrangement. It was all his idea. And it's God who sanctifies this covenant of marriage as he, God, the Father, joins man and woman together. And then, Jesus says, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> so they're asking a question about divorce, and he gets to the root of the issue with a definition 
of marriage. They're asking for exceptions, and he first defines the rule. Now, this same kind of oblique, disingenuous approach of the Pharisees is still what sets the frame for just about any modern discussion about marriage that you find yourself getting roped into when you're talking to family members, or you're talking to coworkers or neighbors or other people, you get, you get roped into these conversations where the frame is set you know, around you know, whether the roles of men and women, sexual identity, divorce, sexual sin, where, where the, the opposition to what the Bible has to say about marriage always begins in the furthest reaches with the most extreme outlier scenario, and the rule is attacked with the exception. The rule is opposed with the most disordered, perverted, confused mess. And so, so we, we always start with the extreme abstraction before we even know what we're talking about. And so the way that Jesus answers this it's the only way to answer any of these challenges. What, what kinds of things come up when you talk to family members and, and relatives and uh, other friends and, and neighbors? Uh, questions like, you might be asked, don't you, don't you think maybe that God makes some people who are only attracted to their same sex? And your answer to that is to do what Jesus says. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? That, that's, that's how you answer that. If, well, well, if two men really love each other and committed to each other, shouldn't society support them in some kind of arrangement, in some kind of a marriage? And you answer, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh? Well, what do you say about people who feel that they're born in the wrong body? Shouldn't we do whatever it takes to help them transition to what they feel? And, and you say, haven't you read that, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Well, wouldn't it be more compassionate, though, if we gave a nine-year-old uh, hormones of the opposite sex? And you say, well, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I'm not trying to be silly here. I'm trying to demonstrate to you that this is the answer, that you go back to the foundation, you go back to the core, you go back to the root truth, that all of these silly scenarios begin to evaporate and, and be exposed for the nonsense they are when you go back to the foundation. See, we always try to have these debates out here on the, on the ends of the branches, and Jesus goes to the root. Uh, don't we need, do we even need marriage in the first place? Isn't that kind of an antiquated, outdated institution? No, God. God said, uh, man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. You start with what God says. You start with the book and argue out from there. That's what Jesus does. So much of the nonsense that we have, have had to answer and respond to has not been propagated necessarily by people who are outside of the church. Uh, so much of the nonsense has come from the, these internet Bible experts and celebrity pastors who have promoted this idea that Jesus never says anything about homosexuality or transsexuality or any of the other perversions that exist. Jesus never said anything about any of these things, really? Except for Matthew 19? I mean, other than Matthew 19, you're saying he never said anything about this? Other than Mark 10, where he repeats it? Could he be any clearer than he is right now? Did, did he leave anything out 
of what needs to be said in just these three or four short verses? Did, was anything left out that he needs to say that's not here? And, and, and also, by the way, uh, internet Bible scholar, celebrity pastor, John 1 says Jesus is the word of God incarnate. Jesus is the word of the Father. Jesus is inseparable from the word of God, which means that Genesis is the word of Jesus. Jesus is speaking in Genesis. He is speaking in Exodus. He is speaking in Leviticus. He is speaking in Deuteronomy. Uh, that, that Jesus is, is speaking. The Old Testament is Jesus speaking. So what do you mean Jesus doesn't speak to this? Have you not read? That's, that's the, the question that Jesus asked. Have you not, have you not read? And there's another local popular pastor, and you may have heard him say that uh, the Bible only whispers about this, this topic. The Bible whispers about sexual sins. The, the Bible whispers about marriage. That there's so many more important things to get, to get hung up on, church, than, than this stuff is, is, the, is the message. As if, as if this is a subject clouded in a deep, dark mystery. Is Jesus whispering here? Is, is Jesus speaking in code somehow? Uh, further than this, the Apostle Paul, I mean, you talk about the rest of the New Testament. Paul gives direct instruction on marriage and sexual ethics in 12 of his 14 letters, in at least 12 of his 14 letters. And if you give me a chance, I'll read the other two again and I'll find it in there as well. But at least 12, is that whispering? Well, what about major sections of teaching on men and women and marriage and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Ruth and Hosea and Malachi, just to name a few? The Bible doesn't whisper on this subject. It could not be clearer. Jesus is not obscure. God's law is not oblique. God's law is not abstract. God's design for and, and his purpose for male and female in marriage is crystal clear. Now, the Pharisees' response to this clear statement would be comedic if it weren't so pathetic. How do they respond to this? Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Back to my airplane analogy. Imagine if you were to say airplanes are carefully designed to fly from one airport to another and to get you safely to your destination at great speed and convenience. And someone were to hear that and they were to scoff and say, then why are there safety measures? Uh, why do they tell us what to do in case of an emergency? That, that, you would hear that question and say, what, what does that have to do with what I just said? And that's nonsense. What does that mean? So they asked Jesus, well, well, I hear what you said about marriage, and why did Moses command a certificate of divorce? As if divorce were somehow a mandate, as if it were an obligation, as if it were an inevitability. Jesus corrects them and says it wasn't a command, it was a permission. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. You see there, they say, why did Moses command? Jesus said, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Divorce is permitted in the event of a disaster. It's, it's permitted in the, in the event of an emergency, but not just for any reason. Divorce is permitted, not obligated, not required, but permitted, Jesus says, under a specific set of circumstances. And the only exception 
where divorce is permitted is in the case of covenant-breaking sin. The Greek word that Matthew uses here is pornea. Most of our English Bibles will translate that sexual immorality or fornication. Uh, when Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, that word there is pornea. And the word pornea refers to a range of covenant-breaking sins, including adultery, fornication, homosexuality, incest, all of the sexual abominations listed in Leviticus. It's also a word associated with idol worship. It's, it's defilement. It's spiritual fornication with idols. And so both the defilement of idolatry and the defilement of prohibited sexual activity are these high-handed, stiff-necked acts of rebellion and violence against the covenant. They're sins which attack the covenant, which break the covenant. Sins which deprive the other member of the covenant from the protections and the enjoyments and the blessings of the covenant. So, so the, in, in marriage, the sexual union is the sacrament of marriage. It is the sign of the covenant. It is the act of covenant renewal. And so if the sacrament itself is polluted by adultery, then the covenant has been directly sinned against. So then, fornication, outright physical adultery are absolutely clear-cut examples of pornea. But there are other forms, severe sins against the covenant, which are just and lawful reasons for the offended party to seek divorce. When, when Paul teaches on this in 1 Corinthians 7, he's not contradicting Jesus. He's building on Jesus, expanding on what Jesus is teaching. And Paul talks about abandonment as a just cause for divorce. He says, if an unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now we spent considerable time on this back when we studied Jesus' teaching on marriage in the Sermon on the Mount. And just simply to summarize here, Jesus teaches in both places that divorce is permissible, not required, but permissible in the event of sins directly against the covenant of marriage. But he opposes this idea that was popular in his day and is popular in our day. He opposes this idea that you can get a divorce just because you think you're incompatible or you're super frustrated or you think it didn't work out or you changed your mind or you outgrew your husband or you outgrew your wife or you argue all the time or you're just not happy. None of those are lawful, just reasons for divorce. Every one of those, we hear those complaints all the time but their evidence is of a basic failure to understand what marriage is and what our respective roles are in it. It's just repent and correct it. Notice Jesus doesn't hesitate to go further in answering their question. He says, whoever divorces his wife for no good reason and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who divorced commits adultery. Now, why does he say that? Well, Herod has done both of those things. He's married a woman uh, who left her husband, and he's put away his wife for no good reason. So Jesus isn't intimidated at all to say that, to say that publicly. But the disciples hear what Jesus says, and even they are a little bit taken aback. In verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus, it sounds like you're saying that marriage is a dead-end street. If you get married to the wrong woman, you're just stuck. Maybe it's, maybe it's better not to marry in the first place. And then Jesus' answer to that is essentially, well, if that's your position, you might as well be a eunuch because there's only one righteous, holy, pure, blessed, life-giving avenue for the fulfillment of sexual desire, 
and attraction. Only one avenue, and that is within the bounds of marriage. You either get married or you stay celibate. There's no other option. And so, for a minuscule minority, celibacy is an actual legitimate option. This is how he answers in verse 11. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Jesus says, this isn't for everyone, only to those for whom it has been given. And he says, some men are born without reproductive capabilities. Some men are made eunuchs by others. This deliberate castration was practiced in the ancient world. A king's attendance and palace services would be castrated in order to protect the royal bloodline. Warfare and other injuries could render someone sterile. In Israel, any one of these scenarios was unthinkable. It was horrible to consider because they put this great emphasis on preserving their family name by having children, and a man who couldn't do that was something less than a man. But Jesus introduces a third category of eunuch, the ones who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, that's not, as some has, have wrongly assumed in church history, that's not an invitation for a man to physically make himself a eunuch. What Jesus is talking about is the option to forego marriage and family life in order to be fully devoted to the work of the kingdom, like Jesus himself has done. Now, now, to be clear, Jesus is headed for a wedding feast. Jesus is headed for his own marriage. Jesus is engaged to a bride, but that is a long way off. For the duration of his earthly ministry, Jesus deferred marriage, deferred fatherhood, deferred family life in order to give 100% of his time, energy, and resources to the ministry his father had ordained him to. So, so Jesus was not physically a eunuch, but he had accepted a celibate lifestyle for the kingdom of heaven's sake. So from firsthand experience, he says, he who can accept it, let him accept it. The, the reality is that very, very, very few people can actually accept this, a, a life of singleness, a life of celibacy, lifelong sexual purity, a life entirely devoted to the work of the kingdom. It's not ideal. It's not perverted. It, it's, it's not more holy or more righteous. It, it's not in any way to be sought after except for those for whom it is given, as Jesus says, for those who are able to accept it. And then for those like Jesus who have accepted this, it doesn't mean that they're fruitless. It doesn't mean that they, they don't have their name preserved or they have any progeny. The prophet Isaiah says in the coming kingdom, even the eunuch will be fruitful. If, if I had more time, I'd love to go to Isaiah chapter 56, but maybe later today you can read that. Look that up, Isaiah 56. He says, Isaiah says, in God's kingdom, the foreigner who has no name, who has no family, who has no genetic heritage, who joins himself to the Lord, finds himself in a new and better nation. And then he says, the eunuch who is a dry tree, who obeys the Lord, has a house and an everlasting name and sons and daughters. So don't, don't call yourself a dry tree eunuch. You have sons and daughters in the kingdom. And then Isaiah also says, a barren woman rejoices over her children in the kingdom. So the point is that everything that is lost 
everything that's given up, everything that's sacrificed in obedience to God is restored and recovered and multiplied in new and better ways in the kingdom. And so as if to punctuate this, we see that even though Jesus is celibate, he's not a dry tree. He's not a fruitless tree. He has children. Verse 13, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Jesus is surrounded by children. He's laying hands on them and he's blessing them just like Jacob was at the end of the book of Genesis. Jacob is laying his hands on his children and blessing them. Jesus is fruitful. Jesus is productive. He has children, even though he has taken this life of celibacy and has foregone uh, marriage and children for a time. Um, it might have been thought unmanly to care about children the way that Jesus did. In the ancient world, it was popular to think that children were women's business until they grew up, until they could work, and then they'd go along with dad. But here, Jesus unwinds all of that. Jesus unravels all of it. He says, no, let them come to me. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Everything that Jesus does is disruptive to the backwards, corrupt, upside down world that is passing away. That old world that's about to be melted with a fervent heat, that world is the impotent world. It's the fruitless world. It's the brutal world of pornea and fornication and, and broken covenants. This new world, this new creation that Jesus is bringing in is the one that preserves men and women, that, that gives us our, our, our con contentment in our roles and in our duties and responsibilities. It preserves marriage. It, it protects children. And it's a world, it's a kingdom where even the eunuch and even the barren are fruitful. Even the stranger finds a home and an inheritance. So I'll just close with a couple of encouragements there. First, to you who are unmarried, who are listening to this, uh, how much of this instruction on marriage and uh, celibacy and divorce, how much of this could possibly relate to you? Well, the answer is all of it. All of it relates to you. All of it concerns you. Beginning with this teaching of Jesus on celibacy, the thought as I was reading this and the thought I was, as I was talking about it, if you're single, you might've been thinking, wow, is, is, is that me? Does, does God have a special calling for me to go through life unmarried? Well, if you have any desire or if you have any attraction for the opposite sex, then my answer to you is probably, probably no. No, likely not, this is not God's plan for your life. If you are hopeful for the prospect of marriage, if you want to be married one day, then don't dwell on this. Dwell on what God said to Adam. It's not good for man to be alone. There's no reason to believe that you should be considering celibacy as your life goal. God is not inviting everybody to this. Jesus isn't inviting everyone to this celibate life. He qualifies it on the beginning and the end. He says, this is not for everybody. This is not even for most people. A very, very slim margin of men and women would be able to be content with a single life. And for those, for the idea is that, that if this, this is for someone, this celibate life, the idea is that all the time and the energy and the resources they would spend on having a home and tending to a family all of that time and energy and resource goes to the kingdom. So it's not simply, you're not simply a eunuch for the kingdom if you sit at home and collect cats. That's not, that's not the point. You, you, it's not simply to be alone, it's that you invest all of that time and energy into the kingdom. So then, leaving that, if you want to be married, 
Listen to what Jesus says about that, single man, single woman, young man, young woman. Listen to what Jesus says, that he made us male and female, he made us for each other, and he made us for marriage. He says, man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That's a mandate, shall, it's a mandate. And so make it a high priority right now, whatever age you are, to be preparing yourself for marriage. Do not engage in sexual sin. Preserve yourself for your spouse. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, each of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That means practice self-discipline. That means control your appetites. Exercise mastery over your impulses and your desires. Uh, exercise discipline over your words and your thoughts. Become the kind of person that a godly person would want to be married to. Make yourself presentable. Learn how to dress. Practice good hygiene. Learn how to hold a conversation. Read and grow and work and become an interesting godly person. Build up your value even now. And if you've left home, or if you're old enough to move out of your parents' house, if you have the maturity and the means to pursue marriage, then go find that girl and talk to her. Girls, be open. Ladies, be open and receptive to that guy when he comes to talk to you. Have high standards. You are looking for a Christian and you are looking for someone you are attracted to, someone who shares your convictions and shares your interests. But don't be perfectionists. Don't be someone who is impossible to please. You can find something wrong with everyone. You will find something wrong with everyone. You're not looking for a sinless person. You're not looking for a person without any faults. You are looking for a humble person. You are looking for a righteous person. You are looking for a person who confesses their sins and who cares about what God says and who cares about doing what God says. So don't settle for a good time or a date or a fling or a romance. No, you are looking for someone who will help you become more like the Savior. You're looking for someone who will worship alongside of you, who will raise up a new generation of Christians with you. And if that's not the person you're talking to or that's not the person you have in mind right now, if they're not even in the, on the way to becoming that kind of person, then cut it off, drop it, move on, learn what you can and start over. But do get serious about this. Make it a priority. Don't think that somebody is just gonna fall out of the sky. I've been praying for a wife and I've been praying for a wife and lo and behold, oh, she didn't drop out of a tree, so I don't know what I'm gonna do. No, you get busy and you do uh, what you have to do. If you need help figuring out the particulars, talk to an older man or an older woman who has been married for a long time Ask them how they found their spouse. More importantly, ask them if there's anything about you. Uh, be honest with me. Is there anything about you that I need to change to find or to attract a mate? And I hear you saying, you don't understand. It's so different now. Yeah, I do know. I do know it's different than it was 20 or 40 or 50 years ago. But I also know that you are the result. You are the evidence that for 6,000 years, people have been figuring this out. And, uh, and somebody figured this out because you're here and, and you can figure this out too. You've got a whole community of people here to help you figure this out. And so, and so be serious and take this as a mandate. No, I really do. I really do be, have to prepare myself 
to build value, to trust God, to discipline myself, and to prepare myself for marriage. This is a, this is a mandate. It's not simply, oh, someday my prince will come. No, I need to be busy. And then just quickly for the married, <clears throat> to the married, how do we hear Jesus's words? Well, stand fast, keep your wedding vows, preserve the covenant, don't entertain, don't ever entertain how great divorce and singleness would be. Don't, don't daydream about divorce, how much, how much sweeter that would be. Divorce is never the greener pasture. Divorce is only the escape hatch from a burning plane. Divorce is itself a disaster. Uh, when, when there is covenant-breaking sin, divorce is a mercy to the person who sinned against, but it's not this triumphant liberation that, that you think it's going to be. So instead, fight for your marriage. God has joined you together. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Repent of your bitterness. Unlearn the selfish patterns you've developed. Unlearn the defense mechanisms that you've trained yourself in, the emotional maneuvering. Give yourself entirely to one another. Cross the finish line. Finish strong. That is the exhortation. We live in a generation that is burning itself out in fruitless, dehumanizing perversion and fornication. The church is the refuge. The church is the true humanity. The church will be the fortress of sanity and normalcy, of fruitfulness and joy, only if we obey the Savior, only if we go back to this foundational truth. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, strengthen us in our life together as husbands and wives. Bind us together. Grant us patience and forgiveness. Provide spouses for our children. Set the solitary in families and make us all fruitful for your kingdom and for the glory of your name. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.